morning church happy sunday today we have an interesting topic romans chapter 13 verses 1 through 7 which is all about christians and the government boy this is a contested passage i mean if there's a battleground in scripture that's been used to support all kinds of views in the world this is the one so i just want to confess something as we begin this morning and i mean this from the bottom of my heart i'm not up to the task of preaching this text for all the concerns of all of the people in our church. It's simply beyond me to be able to speak about this passage with all of the things that might be in your minds. And so I'm going to ask a favor of you as we begin, that you would pause and pray for me, and that you'd pray for us and our relationship. Because anytime we talk about something like politics, something that even borders on those contentious uh, subjects. Today, in our world, in 2020, it's easy for relationships to get broken. And I want you to know that one of the directions that this sermon is going is towards those relationships, the debt that we all owe each other, which is love, and that this is not the end of the conversation. I'm preaching today, and I have a goal, which is to try to answer the question, what does this text say? What does it not say? And what is one of the appropriate meanings that we could derive from it? That's my whole goal today. What does it say and doesn't it say? And that doesn't answer all of our questions about it. So next week, Ben Tremmy, our youth minister, is going to preach from this text again, but a sermon from his heart, from his life experience, from his worldview, from working with teenagers, from being a dad, from being a son, from being a husband, from being an employee, from being a church member who serves under elders. He's going to speak some about these ideas of authority. And then the week after that, Daniel, our associate minister, will preach from the same text. And he will continue to drive even deeper into our, uh, our service towards God that shows up in the way that we uh, work things out in this world and how we handle allegiances. So over these next few weeks, we're going to try to slow down, take a few weeks to unpack some of this text, and we won't cover everything. We can never cover everything, but we'll try to keep it Jesus-focused and to follow in the step of the Holy Spirit as he leads us as a congregation that lives in a world with government. And so we need to know how to be in this world. Would you pray for me right now? And I also will pray for you. Lord, would you be with us? Help us as we move through this challenging text and the ideas that are attached to it to remember our love for Jesus Christ, the King above all authorities and all governments, and our love for you, the Father, who is the authority even over the Son. And above you, Father, is no authority. You are the all and all. We honor you, we worship you, and for your sake, we're subject to authorities in this world that we often do not agree with. Sometimes we find it's hard to even agree at anything with some authorities. But for your sake, Father, we continue to be in this world ambassadors of the King Jesus, full of love, never paying out that debt. Uh, Father, we pray that your grace would be with us and help us in the name of Jesus. The scripture reading today is from Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, 
for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants, who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Okay, let's get started. So we're in Romans chapter 13 today, and we're reading verses 1 through 7. And I would love to invite you to open up your Bibles there and join me and give this text a careful reading. There are so many ways this text has been used in history, so many things that have been affirmed or promoted through it, that it seems right for us to take some time to try to read it again and get a fresh perspective. So there's two things that this text clearly teaches that Christians, that Paul's writing to in Rome, should do. And we should say they apply to us too. These are written to them, but they're for us. So there's two imperatives. What are the two imperatives in the text? Well, verse 1 the first sentence has the first command, the first imperative. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. Or, as it says here in my NIV, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. This is Paul's first point to the Christians in Rome to be subject to those who are in charge in government. Now, that leaves a lot of questions open about how far does that go and which authorities when they disagree and so on, but... The basic point Paul wants to make is this. Let's have Christians in Rome, and then we presume elsewhere throughout history, be good citizens and honor the government and submit and be subject to the laws of the land. So that's Paul's first command. His second command is in verse 7. In verse 7, Paul says, Give everyone what you owe him. And then he gives some supporting examples there, like taxes and revenue, respect, and honor. But the command is, give to everyone what you owe them. So these are the two commands Paul's driving at here in his letter, is let's have Christians be subject to the government, and let's give people what we owe them. So, you know, that's the reason Christians should pay their taxes and so on. Now, everything else in these verses is supporting argument. It's rhetoric, it's reasoning that Paul uses to support those two commands. So, when we see him say things like, there's no authority but what God has established, uh, consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling what God has instituted, and so on, that supports the first command. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. The reasoning is, God has put them in place, and so we serve God, so we should also obey the government. And then he gives supporting reasoning for why we, why we should give to people what we owe them, and part of that's in verse 6. He says the servants in government 
are serving us. They're spending their time working for us. And so we have kind of a contract with them where they serve the people and the people pay taxes and support their life and, and, and pay them in that way. So everything else in the text is supporting the two commands. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities and give to everyone what you owe them. Technically, there's a third command buried in the passage uh, in verse 3. And that other command is actually part of the supporting rhetoric of the first command. It says, do what is right. Do what is right. That pretty much goes with Christian teaching and teaching of the people of God all through history is we should do what is right. Now, we don't always agree on what's right, but we know that we should do what is right. And that is used by Paul in support of the first point, which is be subject to the governing authorities. So there we go. The teaching in a nutshell, in just a, in just a couple minutes, is everyone should be subject to the government and we should give to everyone uh, what we owe to them. Now, there's lots of questions about what this means. And for us to start moving in the weeks to come through some of those questions about how we apply this today, uh, we, w- we might want to look at a few contexts of Scripture. So this is the text, but what is the context? And I'd like to look at four contexts briefly this morning. The biblical context, so what's going on in the whole story of the people of God, And then the missional context. What is Paul doing in his ministry right now that he's writing this letter for that mission? What is the mission and how does that help us understand this reading? And then what is the literary context? That's the third one. So in this letter, Paul's reasoning with Christians and he's teaching them, he's arguing with them sometimes. Why, why here, why now introduce this topic? That's the literary context. And then finally, I just want to comment on the context of their world and our world, their ancient world and our modern world. So uh, you could put it like this. The biblical context would be to say that this passage is not all that the Bible says on this topic. And I can't cover today or even this month everything the Bible says on the topic. But we're aware that the Bible says more than just this. For instance, that God establishes the authorities is clear from this text. But what is not clear in this text, but is clear in the Bible, is that God establishes governments, and that says nothing about his approval of them. We don't know from this text whether God approves of any one government or not, in any single nation or not, at any one time or not. And so the Bible gives us reason to understand that God both establishes all authorities in the world, and yet God himself can be opposed to them. For instance, take Egypt, that Moses is confronting the Pharaoh, giving prophetic witness to the Pharaoh to let the people of God go, is evidence. God has established all the governments, so that means even Egypt and Pharaoh was established by God. And yet God's people oppose that Pharaoh because God doesn't approve of that governing. So established doesn't mean has the approval of God. This is true with uh, David, King David, and King Saul also. God established uh, the rule of King Saul. Now the people wanted the king and God warned them this won't go well for you. It actually wasn't God's plan or desire to establish that government, although it was his will to do it because he did it. So he establishes Saul as king And yet Saul goes against God's will, so God approves now of a new king, David. But look at what happens with David, who's anointed to be king. 
He doesn't take it by force. He doesn't oppose the authority God had instituted. In fact, when he has a chance to kill Saul, he says, let me not touch God's anointed, which is a great reminder for us that the king that God has now chosen to be the new king over his people still can see that the authority that God had previously instituted needs to be respected with certain honor and that he needs to be subject to that authority as long as it exists. That's just remarkable thinking. And then we could look at examples like the high priests who opposed Jesus and then who later opposed the apostles. And the apostles in Acts say to them, well, we have to listen to God, not to you. But they are authorities God instituted, and yet the apostles can't listen to everything that they say. Uh, but when they can, they show that they do it very respectfully. Uh, so consistently throughout Jesus' trial and then the apostles on trial in Acts, they show a lot of restraint and a lot of respect. And then finally, we have the book of Revelation written by John the Apostle much later in his life, which takes a very negative view of the Roman government. Uh, in fact, it takes, a, it takes a decidedly dark view of government because of what's going on in their world at that time. And yet it still doesn't call for Christians to resist violently, but to persevere in faith and to endure. So the Bible says a lot more about Christians and government, about followers of God and government, than just this text. And this text needs to be held in light of all the Bible says. Let's talk about Paul's mission. We can say it like this. What led Paul to say this now? Like, what is Paul working on in his mission that he feels the need to say this? Well, Paul is in the middle uh, with the spirit of focusing on a mission to go west into Spain. He says as much at the end of this letter. He wants to take the gospel to places it has not yet gone. And his hope is to stop in Rome so the Roman church can help him on his way. And that means he needs a unified Roman church. And right now the Roman church at this point is struggling with the powerful and the powerless, as Paul will talk about in the next couple chapters, the, the weak and the strong, the powerful and the powerless. And Paul is doing one, trying to help unite them so that Jew and Gentile in the church can come together to serve God in a unified way, but also so they can support his mission westward into Spain. And he needs a unified church to do that, but he also needs a church that's not embroiled with the government in controversy. If he gets to Rome and the church is currently engaged in, in warfare or in uh, some kind of passive-aggressive controversy, like not paying their taxes, for instance, that church can't support the mission. They're too entangled in the things of the world and not able to support the mission of the church and, and of Christ. So Paul is coming to them for help with his mission, and he's trying to help them as best as they can to be prepared to help him with that mission. So Paul has a missional agenda. And in the letter, let's talk about the literary context. This is our third context. In the letter, we should ask, what else is Paul saying around it? So at what point in the letter is this coming up, and why is it coming up now? Well, Paul, in this point of the letter, is in the middle of defining um, non-hypocritical love, which we talked about last week, non-hypocritical love. So for Paul, he's been talking about the renewing of our mind together since the beginning of what we call chapter 12, and now he's been talking about true love, sincere love, and in fact, he's talking about that still uh, later in chapter 13 on the other side of this government passage. If you look at verses 8 through 10 of chapter 13, you'll see that Paul is still thinking about love. 
that love is a debt we never finish paying, that he will say, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Clearly, it's still part of his section on non-hypocritical love. And so for Paul, verses uh, 14 to 21 of chapter 12, he's talking about non-retaliation. He's talking about uh, people that persecute us, we bless. He's talking about don't repay anyone evil for evil. This is in chapter 12. Do what's right with everyone. Live at peace with everyone. Don't take revenge. And so Paul has been describing that non-hypocritical love is positive non-resistance. It doesn't retaliate. It doesn't take revenge. But a question might come up in the minds of the readers or the listeners that would sound like this. Paul, you're saying we shouldn't take revenge. So are you saying that nothing will be done until judgment day in eternity to make things right in the world? Are you saying that there's no hope of getting justice until eternity? And Paul would say, no, there is a hope of having justice on this side of the eternity. The hope of having justice is that God established governments. And Christians, if you would learn to be subject and, and pay them what you owe them and do what you owe for them, then you too have some hope of receiving some justice on this side of eternity. God has established that as a partial answer for why Christians don't take revenge. It in fact helps us to have government because we don't get tempted to bloody our own hands and to fight for things and to take power into our hands and to use power in worldly ways, which he doesn't want us to be conformed to the ways of the world, which is coercive and uses power to force others to submit, and so on. So Paul says the government is here in order to bring about punishment for wrongdoers and to see that justice is done. So this is God's partial answer, however imperfect, however incomplete. It's a strategy to try to help there be justice in the meantime. And then when somebody reads what Paul says about government, submit to them, give them what you owe them, they might ask this question. They might say, so Paul, you say that we should submit to the government. Are you saying that Christians should do whatever the government says? And Paul would say, well, no, that's not exactly what I meant either. Christ is, according to this letter, the goal of the law. The reason that there was a law for the Jews is in order to produce a perfectly lawful person, Christ, Jesus. The reason that there is any law is because there is some imagination in, in the human mind and in the cultural mind, in the social mind, that there should be a kind of just and right way of living. And so Christ is actually the end of the law. He's the goal of the law. Whenever you see all these imperfect laws, but you see Christ behind them, Christ is the perfect fulfillment of the true laws. So when you look at him, you can get an idea of when laws are right and when they're wrong. And then Paul would also say this in his letter, love is the fulfillment of the law. That's verse 10. So for Paul, there, there, is, there is some give and some take here. If people would accuse Paul of saying, so we have to do anything the government says, Paul would say, no, we have to do what love demands. We have to do what Christ demands. That is the highest law. Love is the high law. It's the true law. And so, as much as it's up to us, we should be subject to the authorities and, and give them what we owe them. But what we owe to everyone is love. Does that make a little sense? I think that that helps us to work through the logic of the passage. 
One more context uh, before we leave this context part behind is their world and culture and our world and culture. Because this was written to them in Rome, and it's for us also, but it was written to them. And it was written to them in some circumstances. So what are the circumstances in which Paul wrote this letter? Well, this is written to people who had almost no political recourse. They have almost no say. They're in an empire. And most of them are slaves or are poor or non-citizens. Most of these Christians don't have high status. And so they have almost no political resource, resources or recourse. Except, of course, that they could turn to violent revolt. And Paul rules that out by saying, don't take vengeance. God will take care of it. Or they could do passive-aggressive maneuvers, but this has gotten them in trouble before, like not paying their taxes. But Paul rules that out by saying, no, pay your taxes. Because the previous emperor, Claudius, had kicked the Jews out of Rome, including many Jewish Christians, for revolting and not paying taxes. And so now they've got access to Rome again. They're back in, and Paul's reasoning with them, let's not get kicked out again. We need this base of operations for the mission. So... You know, violent revolt and passive-aggressive refusal to pay taxes are not the way. And this is written to people um, who are living under the reign of Nero, which initially was very promising. Early in his years, it looked like he was going to be a great emperor. And it was very peaceful for the church, and it was very peaceful for the Roman citizenry. And so there was a lot of hope at this time that maybe uh, this can be of advantage to the mission of God and the people of God. So Paul writes this in that context. So uh, what John writes in Revelation later on is also about Nero and what happens in Rome, but it's from a different perspective later in his reign. Right now, Paul sees the peaceful early reign. Later, John will write about this same Nero after he puts Peter to death and Paul to death and thousands of Christians to death. He will sound a lot different about Nero then. When, in Revelation 13, verse 18, he says the number of the name of the beast is 666, and almost all sound scholarly study of that number has resulted in it meaning Caesar Nero. John is very clearly pointing at Rome and at the abuses of the government and of Nero and saying that is the devil's work. So Paul can say this, be subject and pay them what you owe them. But later John will point out, but that doesn't mean that they're right. There's actually, uh, there's actually a lot of things that go wrong with government. So our context is so different. The world we live in now is so different. We have some political power because we have voting and, and so on. And we have other forms of making our will known as people that they didn't have. So the result is this. And I want to say this is one of those touchy places. I asked you to pray for me. This is one of the touchy places in the sermon, so I hope you'll take a breath and, and think a little bit with me, and, and let's work through this. But here's the result of our world versus theirs. They didn't have much responsibility to try to determine the law of the land because they had no recourse for it. We have voting, and we have other means of sharing our opinion, freedom of speech, so we have a lot of power, and we feel the pressure than of trying to help the law be the best that it can be. And so we actually live in a very different world in relation to government than they did because we have power that they didn't have. So the result is like this. Issues that for Paul 
were merely about loving the individual, and this is the whole Christian call is to love everyone. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love your neighbor is the whole law, right? So for Paul, what was merely an issue of loving other people have become for us to be heavily laden political issues because they're tied to candidates and parties and, and all kinds of things that really get our blood boiling and, and can easily cause us to get upset with people that think differently. And I want to make this appeal. Let Christians never divide over different opinions of candidates. Let's listen to each other and hear each other out and have those long conversations, have the nuanced conversations, but let us not destroy the mission of God and the mission to share the gospel and spread the gospel over our political differences. And yet, I would argue, it's okay for us to disagree because we are trying together as Christians to do the ultimate law of God, which is to love all people, which for Paul, that's the whole issue. And for us, it's become a little more confusing. But think about how, in, I'm going to name four things right now, four things that will make different people maybe feel kind of upset, but I'm just going to name them. I don't presume to know all the right answers about them. But think about abortion in our nation. Our Christian call is towards love, love of the unborn person, love of the pregnant person, love of the other people in their life and love for all lives at all stages in their life so that even the single mother that's chosen to have the child that we we love and help them too. Our call as Christians, regardless of our political or legal convictions, is the law of love, to do whatever we can to show God's justice through love. Uh, same is true of immigration. We probably have a lot of different views on how that should work out. But we have this compelling Christian vision to love people from all nations and even people that are breaking the law that we still have this inclination to love them and to make sure that they're fed and clothed well and given medical treatment and to do whatever love demands. Love is our demand. And then again with homosexuality, which is divisive in our nation, we have convictions about what the Bible teaches about that. But our greatest conviction is the conviction of love, so that no matter what another person's view of that is, is that we love them, treat them with respect and dignity, and try to be good citizens of our government. And the same is true of racism, that there's uh, a lot of disagreement now about what that term even means and, and what should be done about it and how much uh, we're uh, culpable for or, 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 or anything. It's just It's a very divisive topic. But yet there's this Christian call that says we need to love, though. Like, so no matter what the laws of the land end up being, the Christian is going to love every person that we encounter and work on making sure that I don't have things that hold, withhold love, like bias or racism or whatever those things may be, to work towards love. That is the great law. So I just wanted to make that point that we... We don't have time for all those conversations. Those aren't even all easy to substantiate from the Bible, but love is, and that ought to be our driving force in all of these conversations. Now, six times repeated in this passage is this idea that Paul embeds in today's text that is the voice of a dissident, that he is, while he is saying, be subject, he's also saying, but the government is subject to God. And so six times, twice in verse 1, and then in verse 2, twice in verse 4, and in verse 6, 
Paul makes it clear that it's God that gives the authority to governments and that they are the servants of God. So six times Paul says that the government is accountable to God. Now what this means for us is that we are also accountable to God. Remember uh, Colossians 3.23, Paul wrote, we should work for the Lord and not for man. And that's true when it comes to the government too, is that God is our ultimate authority so we're, the reason we're subject to the government is not for their sake, not because the government is divine, but because God is divine, because Christ the Lord is divine, because the Spirit is divine. And so one of the ways this has often been interpreted for Christians is like this. We should obey the law unless they ask you to break God's law. Anybody ever heard this? You know, I think all of us have probably heard this, that for a Christian, for a follower of God, we obey the government unless they ask us to break God's law. And to that I want to say yes and also say some more. Yes, when it comes to my individual responsibility to not break the law of God, that point makes a lot of sense. But I also believe you can go deeper than that, which is uh, that is pretty much all you could say from this text from this text is just the reminder that we answer to God, the government answers to God, God will be the judge of the governments, and so we obey them unless they're asking us to break God's law. That's about all you can say from this text. But the appeal to God's authority in this text points beyond this like a signpost. The fact that six times Paul says, but the government, Caesar, answers to God, is to counter the claims of Caesar in this generation that he himself is divine. The Caesars are boldly calling themselves gods and sons of gods by this time in the empire. And for Paul to say this is sneaky and, and, and a little bit of a voice of a dissonant. To point beyond it and to say, remember that the Bible says more about government than this, and that the Bible says more about prophetic witness of what the church needs to speak about right and wrong. So yes, my personal accountability is to obey the government, but ultimately God. But our uh, church responsibility is to remember that since God is in charge, sometimes we have to also speak words of accountability to governments. So for instance, John the Baptist has to tell the truth to Herod when Herod is living in immorality by taking the wife of his own brother. John preaches against that governing authority, and it costs him his life. Now, John remains subject to the authority the whole time because, in the end, Herod has the right to take his life. That's the punishment. But he is the voice of a dissident that we must listen to who holds the government to God's authority and accountability. Or Jesus with the tax question. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus produces the coin or has them produce the coin and asks whose face is on it. And he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and God what is God's. That sounds very much like give everyone what you owe him right here in verse 7. And Jesus there also is a dissident when he says, if Caesar cares to put his face on the coin, give it back to Caesar. He cared enough to put his image on it. But God put his image on humanity. So let every body and every mind and every person and their breath and their voice and their life belong to God. That's the voice of a dissident who says, yes, we'll pay our taxes, but the person belongs to God, not to Caesar. 
Or finally, our Lord Jesus, when he was confronted face to face with Pilate. And Pilate says to him, don't you know I have authority to set you free or put you to death? And Jesus says, as the voice of prophetic, dissident, and witness, you would have no authority over me if it were not given to you from above. And Jesus remains subject to Pilate's authority, even though Pilate's authority comes from Jesus' own Father. And Jesus' Father in heaven has given Pilate the authority to be a governor, and yet does not, uh, does not have a, a willing servant in Pilate who does what is right. He wrongfully puts Jesus to death. <laughs> and so Jesus is subject to Pilate because he allows himself to become a martyr, to be, to be killed, to be executed, to be crucified. And yet he can look Pilate in the eyes and say, the only reason you can do this is because you answer to God, and God will hold you to account. So, in summary, this text, today's text, reminds us that we should be respectful and cooperative citizens. It does that. It doesn't do much more than that in its context. We should even be, according to verses 8 through 10, loving citizens, loving citizens, who do an awful lot of thinking. And we ought to do an awful lot of thinking about the God who is truly in charge and what he wants for people. And we ought to do an awful lot of praying to the Lord who was crucified by the dark side of government and who willingly allowed that to happen to him and yet was able to speak a prophetic word to them. That's what it looks like to be subject to government, even to dark government. So we ought to pray, and we ought to pray a lot to this crucified Lord. We ought to see in our prayer his crown of thorns placed there by an empire. We ought to see there his hands spread out and his feet nailed to the cross, nailed there by the power of government. And yet we ought to also see that Jesus said from the cross, forgive them, they know not what they do. And he had a larger vision for his role and mission in the world than merely being entangled with the government. He was subject and he was loving and he was a dissident and he was all of those things at once. And so are we. Let's pray for God's mercy and help. In the name of our Lord Jesus and the church says, Amen.